But one of the most popular shows on uh, Netflix, the streaming service, is a program uh, or documentary called uh, Making a Murderer. Um, it follows the investigation and the potential retrial and appeal um, of a convicted murderer called Stephen uh, Avery. And people seem to absolutely love this show. They uh, often rave about it to me. And I think one big reason that people love this show is that in all of us is a love of justice. Inside all of us is a love of justice. We love justice. Uh, we love right judgment. I think we rightly want bad actions to be punished and good actions to be praised. We want bad people to be judged and face the punishment they deserve. And maybe in the case of Stephen Avery, we want to make sure that justice is served correctly. We want him uh, to be free if he's innocent, but we want him to face justice and punishment if he's guilty. However, I don't ever think we want to be judged ourselves, do we? We don't mind uh, the evil of others being uh, judged and punished and condemned, but ourselves? No, thank you. See, funnily enough, my bad behavior, okay, it's not great, but it's not quite bad enough to be punished. It's not quite bad enough to be judged. And today, as we think about Noah and the flood, uh, we're going to see, and I think we've already seen it from our reading, it's not quite the kid's Playmobil set that I was given when I was younger. This isn't Noah and his family holding hands, skipping onto the ark, singing, Come by Army Lord. This is scampering and fear. This is real, divine judgment on real human wickedness. Today, we are going to see that the sin of the world back then, we're going to see how we are much the same in today's society. And we're going to see that just as divine judgment fell on the people back then, it's going to fall here when Jesus returns. And that brings us to our first point, wicked world, gracious God. Look down at verse 1 with me of chapter 6. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Here, just in these verses, we see the sin of the world highlighted. Now, as I read some commentaries on this uh, particular passage, a few of them seem to suggest that it, this could be the most debated section in Genesis, maybe even the Old Testament. But I want to say to you that we can be confident in what it means. The fundamental thing we need to see here is that wickedness is pervading in the world and becoming more a part of everyday life. The sons of God, if you see in verse 2, is a reference to fallen angels, to demonic beings. They're mentioned again in 1 Peter and Jude in reference to the flood. And look down at what these demons have done. They've seen that the daughters of men were beautiful and they lusted after them. They lusted after that beauty. They inhabited the bodies of men to take humans as their brides and have sexual relations with them. Notice in verse 2 that they chose any woman they wanted, as many as they wanted. Here we have the outworking of Lamech's sin from the other week. The first perversion of God-given marriage leads to another and another 
And now we have demons taking multiple wives. This society is oozing with wickedness. And the language used here to describe the demon seeing and taking is parallel language to Genesis 3 where Eve saw the fruit and takes it in defiance to God. Well, glance down at verse 4 with me. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Now, the Nephilim can be somewhat, again, a a, a mystery. But again, from other verses in the Bible, we know that these were the offspring of the demonic beings and the daughters of men. We can see that they were renowned in some sense. They were revered by those who lived at the same time as them, thought of as mighty men. But I think, again, what this shows us, it was an attempt by man to become like God. The hope being that as they joined with these demons, they may become immortal. They might become more like God. But I think it's sad to see that we keep falling for that lie, don't we? We saw it in Genesis 3, where Eve fell for it. And people in Noah's day fell for it again. They forgot to see that they're actually not like God. We're never designed to be exactly like him, but we were made in his image. And it's astonishing to see as we look at this passage that every time someone or something steps outside of its God-given boundaries, wickedness and sin abounds. Eve disregards God's boundaries in the garden and sin enters the world. Lamech disregards God's boundaries on marriage and he becomes a polygamist and a murderer. And here the demons step out of their God-given boundaries and we see that wickedness pervades into society. But this wickedness can't go on forever. You see, there's going to be a day when judgment comes. Just glance down at verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. Then just jump down to verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Now when we see that in verse 3, I don't think this is God saying there's a prohibition on how old people can become. He's not saying that once you get to 120, that's it, that's cut-off point. I think here it's a reference to how long it's going to be before judgment comes, before the flood comes. You see, this is the countdown clock until the society and its evil as we've seen is wiped out. And just look again at verse 5. Look how bad things are. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Every thought, every incline, only evil all the time. Every thought. And look, God goes on in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. People are evil. And the Bible tells us that this evil stems from within our own hearts, because we're people who have rebelled against God. And this is what a society that turns away from God looks like, a world full of violence, 
a world where wicked acts are celebrated, where faithfulness and goodness are trampled upon. And I wonder if you thought how much this sounds like our own society. You see, we live in a society that celebrates abortion, but sacks nurses for offering to pray with their patients. We parade and adore things like Game of Thrones, a program filled with violence and sexual immorality. But then we wonder why there's an epidemic of violence, knife crime, and divorce in our culture. See, we've rejected God, and we've rejected his ways. We've rejected that everyone was made in his image with absolute equality. And yet here we are wondering why our society is filled with division and racism, with sexism, homophobia, and hatred. You see, the society today is so very much like it was in Noah's day. A society where evil and wickedness were commonplace. And how does God feel about this evil in his created world? Well, look at verse 6 with me. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. I don't think we should read this verse um, in, uh, through our own lens of regret and our senses of what regret means. I don't think he's saying that God was uh, caught off guard by what happened, uh, that he'd never realized that was going to happen, and now he's a bit like, oh, that's not uh, gone as a planned. I think this is kind of human language applied to God. Uh, God here is trying to uh, demonstrate his pain as he sees a world in rebellion, as he experiences his creation turn against him and become increasingly wicked. God is troubled, he's upset, he's brokenhearted for a world of perfection marred by human sin. He's hurting for what could have been an immortal human race without failure that has become a mortal race of God-hating, sin-loving rebels. And I think we can all relate to this, can't we? When we see those we love make unwise decisions that cause hurt or upset, we're broken about it. And I think for those of you who are parents with children, you might understand this better than most. That son or daughter who's grown up but now lives life without you, who's made a series of choices that have only hurt themselves or those around them. And this is like what God is experiencing. God is hurt and broken that his people who he loves have turned against him. And therefore God is left with no option than to be just and to judge the wickedness on the earth. Just glance down at verse 7 with me. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. We see the same idea expressed in verses 13 and 17. God says he's going to send a, uh, judge the world through a flood, so he's going to take away the very breath of life he gave to all the creatures in Genesis 1 and 2. And so here we have the stark consequences of the wickedness that reigns on the earth. This evil behavior has an end date. We saw that earlier in verse 3. And here God is explicit that the punishment of sin is death. In Genesis 3, God said that the punishment of rebellion, of eating from the tree which he commanded not to, was going to be death. 
And here again, we have that reiterated. And here also, we have the reiteration that the consequences of sin go beyond man. Remember in Genesis 3, creation is cursed because man rebels. And now in Genesis 6, huge swathes of creation are going to be wiped out because of man's wickedness. The fall has invaded every area of creation so badly that it needs to be decreated and then renewed and recreated. I don't know if you can or can't cook, um, but I think we've all probably had that uh, incident where we've been cooking and we've left something on the hob for a little bit too long. Uh, we might have been cooking pasta and now it's uh, been so burnt on that the pasta is now part of the pan and there's nothing left to do. We're going to have to chuck the pan out and start again. And that's just a lighthearted illustration of what's happening here. God is saying things are so bad that the only thing he can do is chuck it out to wipe it away and start again. Animals and people. You see, people might have reached for immortality. They might have strived to take immortality for themselves, but soon their mortality is going to become very real. It's going to become very exposed. And I want to say to you that our world is going to face the same judgment for the same God-rejecting evil we see around us in our culture. God is not going to let injustice reign forever. And maybe if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, then I want you to think about this and ask yourself, do you believe that the world is as bad as the Bible describes? Are you ready for the judgment to come? Can I urge you to think about this? It's something we're going to come back to a bit later, but why not think about it now? Are you ready for the judgment that the Bible says is coming? And when we think of this judgment, we're left with a question. What hope can there be? Wickedness and evil are commonplace. Everyone and everything is overstepping the, their God-given boundaries. And even demonic forces are active in this society. The picture is bleak. But there is hope. And that hope has to come from God. It has to come outside, from outside the creation. And this hope is going to be rooted in the very character of God. Because he is, by nature, a gracious God. There is grace, and therefore there is hope. And that's our next point. We're just going to look at grace. Look at verse 8 with me. It says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, when we read the words um, favor, uh, we shouldn't think that this means uh, Noah earned God's favor. And this wasn't God uh, seeing from uh, heaven someone on earth who managed to step up to his requirements, uh, to reach the standard of holiness that God acquires and say, yep, he'll do because he's already perfect. He's already scrubbed himself up enough. That's not what's going on here. This is God graciously choosing to work through a fallen person. Often um, the word favor is used when talking about someone who is in great authority, helps someone of little or no status. And this is what's happening here. We have the God of the universe who in Genesis 1 and 2 flung the stars into space is now helping and showing grace to a fallen human being who lives in a wicked and immoral society. So even at the end of this little section, we're going to see there is hope. 
God is going to show undeserved, unmerited kindness. And how is he going to do it? How is he going to show this grace to Noah? We've been told, haven't we, there's a flood coming, so look at what God's solution is in verse 15. Make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. Then scan to verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You see, God has a plan to save Noah. Noah is instructed to build an ark, and that's going to keep him safe through the judgment. He's going to enter the ark along with his family and two of every creature or animal, and they're going to be safe from the flood. They're going to be safe from the judgment of death. And more than that, if we look down, we can see that God says he's going to make a covenant with Noah. See, Noah isn't just going to survive this flood, but after it, he's going to prosper. He's going to prosper as he has a close relationship with this covenant-making, promise-making God. And so again, we're left with a question. What is Noah's response going to be? God says, here is the option. What is Noah's response going to be? We're going to see a response of faith. Just look down at verse 9. It says, This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Here we see God's uh, verdict on Noah, that he was a righteous and blameless, that he walked with God. But observe how this description comes after God's verdict of grace towards Noah. I just want to reiterate that this is not Noah did these righteous acts and therefore God chose him. No, God chose Noah and therefore Noah responds as a man of faith, a man who walks with God closely. And we have to remember that this ark building project was a crazy idea. No one would have expected judgment like Noah was foretold to come. Nobody could see a flood coming on the horizon. You see, the passing phrase of Noah's society was eat, uh, drink, be merry, get married. There's no concern here of impending judgment. And Jesus says this in Matthew 24. And I wonder if God had said this uh, to you, what would you have done? Would you have believed him? We look at the world around us and think, well, it looks safe uh, and sturdy. Surely this judgment is not going to happen. Surely this cataclysmic end of the world judgment can't really happen here. So how is Noah going to respond? Well, verse 22, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. God has told Noah to make an ark and told him exactly what it should look like and how many floors it should have, how long and high and wide it should be. And this thing is huge. It's going to be the modern equivalent of a cruise liner or an oil tanker. You see, this task seems impossibly large for an impossibly unlikely outcome. But just look at how Noah takes God at his words. He did everything just as God commanded him. Just look at how he stands in perfect opposition to the world around him. We said earlier that everything in this society is evil. Everyone is only doing evil. But look at Noah. He does everything God commands him. And Hebrews 11, commenting on Noah, says this in verse 7 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, 
in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Noah is an example of faith for the believer, of taking God at his words, of trusting his promises, and then living out that faith. And for Noah, trusting God, taking God at his words, meant building an ark when he most likely lived nowhere near the ocean. It meant for 120 years, he was going to face scorn and mockery for being the only person that trusted God and walked with him. We're even told in 2 Peter that Noah was also a herald of righteousness. He was most like the guy urging people about the impending judgment. He was telling them of their need to turn to God and trust in him for salvation. I mean, that is perseverance, isn't it? 120 years of telling people to come to God and not one convert. You see, faith for Noah meant trusting that God could do the impossible. That what was impossible for man was possible for God. That God could rightly judge the world, yet he could also save others. And that's going to bring us to our second shorter point, wicked world just God. Wicked world, just God, as we move on to chapter 7. So Noah has had his instructions in verses 9 to 22 of chapter 6, and now it is time for judgment to come. But first, we're going to see that God is going to preserve some people even through the judgment. Look down at verse 1 of chapter 7 with me. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. And then verse 5, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Again, we get this repeated refrain, Noah did all the Lord commanded him. God says to Noah at the start of this chapter, it's time to get into the ark. You and all the animals need to get inside And we need to see God's kindness in this provision. Firstly, we know from uh, chapter 6, God gave Noah instructions on how to build the ark. And Noah wasn't just uh, left alone. He wasn't told, okay, Noah, there's going to be a flood. Uh, You might want to think about what you're going to do. Maybe build something that floats. That would be a good idea. No, God gave him clear and explicit instructions on how to prepare and what to do. Secondly, notice how God sovereignly makes all the animals come to Noah and go into the ark in verse 9. Noah wasn't having to be like Bear Grylls trekking across countries to find some rare mountain goats. No, rather God miraculously brings all the animals in. God himself guarantees their survival. Thirdly, notice that God sends in two of every animal and saves a family of people. Notice that there's that repeated refrain, male and female. People and animals that were created, both male and female, just like they were in Genesis 1 and 2. We can say then that within this ark is going to be the seed of future recreation. We can see that the ark is a sign that this isn't the end of everything forever, but rather it's a decreation leading to a recreation. God is getting rid of the evil and starting again with the animals and people that we find on the ark. Fourthly, just look down at verse 16 with me. 
where we see that it is the Lord who seals the door, who shuts them in the ark. This is a kindness of God. If you want anyone to seal you in anywhere, you want God to do it. And notice how he's called the Lord, his covenant, his promise-making name. Here's the God who promises deliverance, starting the delivery. It's just a small symbol of God's control over the situation. Although chaos ensues around, God is sovereignly in control. So the people are all aboard the ark. There is nothing left now but for the foretold judgment to come. For 120 years, people have been hearing a message that they need to be right with God, that judgment is coming. For 120 years, people could have listened to Noah. God was so kind in giving people over a century to repent and turn to him, to stop pursuing the evil they went headlong into. He gave them 120 years to be like Noah, to have faith in him and trust his words. But no one repented. No one sought God. And so the evil must be justly punished. Just like we, as people made in God's image, we want evil in our society to be justly punished and justice to be done, so too God wants justice to reign on the earth. And therefore, wickedness must be punished. And this is where we're going to see the judgment Glance down to verse 17 with me. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. So I remember a few uh, years ago... It rained constantly for about two weeks uh, when I lived back in Lancaster. At the end of the two weeks, uh, the river loon that runs through the city uh, burst its banks. Uh, the electricity was out for a few days. Uh, businesses were closed. Uh, the high street was closed. Uh, I remember cars floating on the street that my brother lived on. It was a devastating uh, flood. It caused a lot of damage to local businesses. A lot of houses were wrecked. But this was absolutely nothing compared to what we have here in these verses. The water kept coming for 40 days, non-stop. Just imagine for a second being there outside the ark. Imagine waking up, you talk to your neighbor, oh, the weather's been bad recently, hasn't it? We have an obsession with weather in the UK, especially rain. So you can imagine, it kind of says, oh, hopefully it'll be a bit better next week. Well, a week goes by. The rain keeps coming. The water levels are rising. Okay, this isn't great. Um, maybe we'll put some sandbags outside our house, that, you know, just kind of keep it. And hopefully in a few weeks' time, it'll all be away. Then a few days later, you find yourself scrambling to get your valuables upstairs as the flood water pours in to the ground level. Now panic has set in. Then suddenly you find yourself abandoning the house altogether. The water's creeping up the stairs. You can no longer live there. Surely this is going to stop at some point, right? Surely Noah wasn't right all along, was he? And then you move to higher ground. You leave the city or village or town you live in, head up towards the mountains. But then the waters finally stop. And even Mount Everest itself is covered by the water. 
this judgment is inescapable. This judgment is devastating. It's so far from the happy, clappy story of Sunday school. This is the gut-wrenching story of a world under God's judgment. And just look at verse 22. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. The breath of life given by God at creation is taken away as punishment for the wickedness of people, for the violence of Lamech, for the sexual deviance of the demons and people, for the evil inclinations of people's hearts. And all of it has finally been dealt with. The hammer blow has come. People dead, animals dead. Severe, just, righteous judgment has been dealt on the earth. And just glance down at verse 23. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. Noah and those with him have been preserved. The ark has been their protection from the flood. God provides the ark for those on board to be safe, while those outside the ark are left to face the consequences of their actions. So as we conclude, I want to ask you again, are you ready for this judgment? See, earlier I referenced Matthew 24, and this is what Jesus says in that passage. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. See, in this passage, Jesus is the Son of Man, who we're told is going to come back to judge the living and the dead. That those who trust God, those who have faith, those who have repented from evil will be safe from the judgment, much like Noah was safe from the judgment. But those on the outside, well, they're going to face the judgment of God. Just listen how Jesus says people won't expect him to come back and judge the world. Just like they were ignorant and ignored Noah's message, Jesus says people are going to ignore him. Well, friends, if you are here tonight, then can I beg you, don't ignore this message. This world is corrupt and judgment is coming. And as we thought about this morning, this judgment that Jesus is bringing is eternal. You see, the flood might have lasted a few months, but hell will be forever. This is conscious punishment forever. This is the second death, the Bible says. How can we be ready for this judgment? Well, we need to say sorry to God. We need to admit the evil that's in all our hearts. We need to admit the fact that we've not lived with God at the center every day. That every day we do things that dishonor and offend God. We need to ask God for forgiveness. And he says if we do, he promises that he will truly and sincerely forgive us of all unrighteousness. 
And the story only gets even better. The Bible says that when we become Christians, we are united to Jesus. And that by being united to him, we can be safe from God's judgment. In Jesus, just like in the ark in Noah's day, is safety from God's judgment. We need to be ready for this judgment day. And we can only be ready if we give our lives to Jesus. If we give our lives to God and unite ourselves to Jesus, he's the only safe rock in the storm. Jesus, he is the ark of our salvation. Come to Jesus today. And if you are here and you would say you are following Jesus, then I want to challenge you quickly as we think about the person of Noah. Firstly, can I encourage you to be someone who's a persistent herald of righteousness? We thought about it earlier, but for 120 years, Noah called people to come to God and be safe from the judgment. And I don't know about you, but I find if I invite someone for six months to an event and nothing happens, I'm tempted to give up. Brothers and sisters, if we can see how severe the judgment of God is, then we need to be those who lovingly, wisely, yet persistently pursue our friends and family to come to know Jesus. Persevere when things are tough and rest, knowing that God will call those he has chosen. Secondly, can I urge you to live out the faith you hold to? I was recently challenged by a student in our church family um, who'd been reading a book that asked this question. It asked that if a non-Christian friend or family member was to look at your life for a whole week, would they know that you love Jesus? Would they know? Would they know that you had faith in God and went to church every week? You see, Noah was a man who stuck out in his culture, blameless among his people because he walked with God and took him at his word. Are we those who live out this faith? Do we live out the faith that we profess or do we plan as soon as we leave those doors on forgetting about what we've heard? Friends, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, can I urge you to live a life worthy of the gospel? to be faithful and blameless in a crooked generation. Let's pray together.